soprano Ana Maria Martinez, tenor Dimitri Pitas, and conductor Emmanuel Villome are backstage at Lyric. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for one of the world's best-loved operas, Puccini's poignant La Boheme. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel featuring Ana Maria Martinez, Dimitri Pitas, and Emmanuel Villon. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm so, so pleased that we have our leading lady, our leading man, and our conductor with us tonight. Puerto Rican soprano Ana Maria Martinez, our Mimi, has had great successes at Lyric Opera, first in her debut role of Nedda in Pagliacci, and then in her, in her return to us as Marguerite in Faust. Earlier this season, she sang her first Antonia in Les Contes d'Offman at the Opera Nationale de Paris. She returned to the role of Rusalka by Dvorak for a revival at the Bavarian State Opera in Munich. The role of Rusalka actually introduced her to Gleinborn in 2009. It was that festival's very first production of the piece, and that is now on CD. Later this season, Anna Maria will be traveling to Amsterdam to sing her first performances of Eva in Meistersinger at, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Netherlands Opera. The New York-born tenor Dimitri Pitas, who is our Rodolfo, made his lyric opera debut in last night's opening performance of Bohème. Earlier this season, he was Rodolfo at Houston Grand Opera, and in this Verdi year, he will sing two major Verdi works, The Requiem at the NHK Symphony in Tokyo and the title role of Don Carlo at the Teatro de Capitol in Toulouse. He's also going to be back in Munich as Nemorino in L'Elysir d'Amore. Now, a lot of you probably have heard him in the Met HD series. He sang the role of Macduff in the new production of Macbeth, which is now on DVD. The French conductor Emmanuel Villome is a good friend of Lyric Opera. Bohème is his fifth production with us. That follows Sanson et Dalila, Manon, The Merry Widow, and last season's Tales of Hoffman. He is the chief conductor of the Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra in Bratislava, and he's artistic director of, and chief conductor of the Slovenian Philharmonic, and he's former music director of Spoleto USA. A major highlight of this current season for him is a European tour conducting Tchaikovsky's opera Iolanta with Anna Netrebko in Paris, Vienna, Amsterdam, and eight other cities. And later this season, he'll be leading concerts with the Slovak Philharmonic. We'll be in Munich for Les Contes Hoffmann and at Santa Fe Opera for Offenbach's Grand Duchess of Gerolstein. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Ana Maria Martinez, Dimitri Pitas, and Emmanuel Villon. (laughs) 
Of course, I do not have to do my 60-second handy-dandy synopsis of Bohem because all of you could recite the synopsis of Bohem to me very easily. So we will just proceed. And I, first, I want to thank you all for coming out the evening after your opening and bravi to all of you for a beautiful performance last thank night. You. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So, of course, we have to find out when you first became aware of La Boheme, and did you encounter it in a recording or in, in a live performance? How did you first become acquainted with it, all of you? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I uh, became acquainted with it through my mother, who sang the role of Mimi. And uh, when I was very little, she sang with the New York City Opera Touring Company. And uh, so I was listening to it at home and listening to her voice lessons and her coachings. And uh, so that was my introduction and uh, so it was sung I would hear my mother of course and then also the recordings with Mireille Lafreni who is yes oh. <laughs> yeah I, I think my first interaction was uh, uh, I was in college and I uh, I was a music education major at the time I wasn't into performance I was going to become a music teacher and I bought an opera for dummies book they were very big at the time <laughs> And, yeah, and, and they had this special disc in the back that had tracks, and, and one of the tracks was, uh, was Que Geli La Manina. And so that, that was, I think, my first time ever hearing any of it. Um, and then we fast forward three years later, and I'm auditioning for Rodolfo that my college is putting on uh, in La Boheme. And my mom hears about this, and she buys me tickets to go see it at the Metropolitan. And that was, that was the first time that I'd ever seen an opera. And it was uh, it was that production at the Met, which they still do today. So that was although in that production, did you? I wanted to ask, did you find that you couldn't really locate Rodolfo and Mimi in Act Two because there's so many people on the stage? Yeah, I mean, 150 I, people, a horse, a donkey. Uh, it's Paris. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Emmanuel, what was your first Bohem experience? Uh, my first contact with opera. Uh, was with uh, Puccini and was with uh, Durandot in the Children's Chorus uh, in Strasbourg, in my in my uh, native city. Um, and then we did, uh, in the Children's Chorus, a lot of uh, operas, and uh, that was very important for, for me, of course. It actually did change my life. But my voice changed before I could do La Bohème. So, uh, in the children's chorus, that is. Um, and uh, so I went to see it, still in Strasbourg at the opera, but already I had the, the voice I have today, or something close to it. <laughs> um, Anna Maria, Mimi is sort of, I mean, she's such an important part of your life at this point. I mean, she's been with you for a long time in your career, and I assume that you'll be singing her for many years to come. So there has to be some special thing in her that drew you to her to start with, in terms of her character I'm talking about, in terms of Mimi the human being, that keeps you interested in her and caring about her. So what is that? Yeah, I I think she's a very, very loving person. She's quite shy, as Puccini presents her, and uh, quite introverted. But as we all know, uh, an introvert usually has a very rich inner life. Um, and I think that she clearly has that when she feels comfortable with Rodolfo and she starts talking about herself. Some of the things she says throughout the opera, but uh, in Act One, are quite poetic, uh, very rich in imagination and generosity of heart. Um, I think that one of the things that makes her stand out 
which is the same for a lot of Puccini heroines, is that uh, she never feels sorry for herself, and she's always putting others before her. And uh, even to her last moment, she's, she wants to die with Rodolfo, but she's there comforting him. And when she says, Buongiorno, Marcello, Shonar, Colline, Buongiorno, she's actually saying goodbye to them. And uh, even her moment with Musetta, when Musetta's putting the, the, her muff, um, she's saying uh, goodbye in a very loving way. So she's quite extraordinary, quite courageous in a quiet, gracious way, and I, I love that about her. Then I'll ask Dimitri now the same question, the attraction that you felt, not so much to his music initially, but to him as a human being. Well, I, I think he's very... He is a... Rodolfo is a quintessential tenor role, and he's got all of the emotions, and that's something that is, is nice to go through in an evening. There's the, the tomfoolery in the beginning with the boys, and then there's the, the complete surprise and, and swept off of your feet when Mimi comes in, and, and the love that, that comes out of that. And then you get into the frustration, anxiety, anger. I mean, you, he really hits everything uh, that, you, that you can feel emotionally, and, and uh, that's, that's what that's what I love about him and that's what draws me to him is, is my ability to at any time be able to play any emotion with him. I really, I really get a kick out of that. Emmanuel, I'm wondering if in France one grows up with the Murger novel the same way that we in this country would grow up with the novels of you know, Mark Twain or somebody like or Hemingway or, you know, great... Is it familiar to people or not? Absolutely not. It's it does, not. It doesn't exist. You can't find it in any library. And if it's there, I will take it away from the library because as, as a novel, it has absolutely no value. Uh, uh, so, so I should mention that this is Henri Murger's <laughs> Scenes from Bohemian Life, Saint de la Vie de Bohème, which is what the libretto is loosely, fairly loosely based on. Right. So, but I, actually... Uh, uh, Probably a story that is not so good for an, for a novel might be very good for an opera. And there is something that about you know, for instance, the, the first act situation in the opera, you have these two people saying, "Hi, I lost my key. Here's my candle. I love you. I want to live with you forever." <laughs> in three lines, almost literally. I mean, in two audition areas of five minutes, and that's it. You would have that even in a play just like this. That would not be believable. But with the genius of the music, you believe it totally. And, and you are with these people like you are in your first love ever in life. And, and this is very true. Um, but you would put the libretto just like this and read it. You say, no, no, something is... I'm missing 100 pages here, you know? Um, so my point is, a story that is maybe not really working may be a very good argument for an opera because the music can express what the words cannot express. So, and the novel of, of uh, I always forget his name, poor guy, uh, is so, I mean, there is not much in it. But what Puccini is doing with it is extraordinary. And somehow, maybe because it's so thin, the music can express itself so powerfully. The, let me ask Dimitri and Anna Maria, if you read the Murger, what you got out of it, if anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, um, I, 
I have to, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to agree with, with some of what Emmanuel said, that, that the novel really doesn't have a lot of, uh, it doesn't hold my interest very well, but I could, uh, knowing the, the opera as well as I do, of course everything makes sense, and I can see what, that Puccini said, okay, here's a highlight, here's another highlight. What, I'm, what, I, mm, what I really don't like about the novel is that I find that it presents me, me in a kind of cold way, kind of a climber, mm. an opportunist, and that's not Puccini's version of Mimi. Um, she's, she's all love, and so when I first came in contact with that, I mean, my reaction was, ah, you mm-hmm. know, like, close that up, I don't, <laughs> don't want to know, no, I don't want it to, to affect me uh, in some way. I think that um, I love very much the play, the dynamic between Musetta and Marcello in the novel, there, those are things that I can uh, really appreciate, but as far as the relation with Mimi, that that I had a very strong reaction to that. I, I have to admit, I when I read, well, when I first did Rodolfo, I was uh, 21, 22 years old and in college, and I, I had a lot of other reading to do. So, <laughs> so I didn't get around to it my first, my first, I would say even my first two or three uh, uh, productions of it. And then I, I started reading it, and, and I said, oh, oh, so that's why that director made me do that. It's, like, it's oh, not yeah. in like right. any of the Puccini yeah. right. things, but like yes, yes, they yes. saw something yeah. out of, uh, you know, that, they, that, that spoke to them in a way, mm-hmm. and so they decided to adapt it into their production, and, and this and that. And, and you know, like sometimes you go somewhere, and there's a balcony, and sometimes there isn't, and sometimes there's topiaries in that room, and sometimes there isn't. It's just like, and, and it, it just depends on... I think because the, it's such a broad reading, um, at least the, all of the, the, little, the little stories that, that, that Morga had set. And then when Barriere, I think, when they created it as a, as, a, as a stage piece together, I think they parted down a lot. And that is what uh, Puccini had seen and, and, and took interest in. And so I think that, that uh, most of the, the, the musical elements that come out of it emotionally come from, from, from that piece in particular. But it's still fun to, to see, to get, you get all of this background, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's useful or not. I mean, something as simple as the garret used to actually be owned by Shonar, and he got kicked out because he didn't pay the rent. And the next person that happened to move in was Marcello. And so then, so then starts making you think, oh, well, that explains why he's so comfortable when he walks in and just throws gold on the floor is because it was his place, too. So those, those kinds of things, I think, are important to know about, not necessarily to emote for, for the public, but to just have, have, be aware of. You know, you know, there's a really interesting, more than interesting, un- unforgettably beautiful silent film version of the story of Bohem, which is the, the, the story of, from the novel, actually, rather than the opera, in which the, the Mimi is played by Lillian Gish. And it's, it's out on commercial DVD now. So I highly, highly recommend, if you want to explore aspects of this piece, that you get a hold of it. It's brilliant. Um, within the first 15 minutes, of course, we've met the four guys. So let me ask Dimitri and then Emmanuel, what's most important to communicate in terms of their interaction and also the way they relate to each other musically in that introduction to the four. I mean, first Rodolfo and Marcello are on the stage and then Colina comes in and then Shonach. So there they are, the four of them. And these relationships have to be made clear somehow. I think 
yes, they're four different characters, but I think to to uh, to kind of take on the bohemian life, I think you had to know about all aspects of it and all aspects of art that was going on at the time. And I think that they probably dabbled in everything. And maybe because of that, they were able to, to have these relationships that were so tight. I think surely not only was Rodolfo a bad poet, but he was also, he, he might have dabbled in, in painting as well. And they all uh, waxed poetic and, and were philosophical to an extent too. And I think that, that the, the relationship and the fact that these four guys do have a lot in common despite their differences um, makes them just be able to jump on top of each other's jokes and, and wit so quickly. I think that that's really important to, uh, as, as a performer, to, to establish the relationship for the public. I think you, we really need to know and almost predict what's already coming out of, out of our colleagues' mouth before, it's, before it even happens. I think that's, that's, that signifies the closeness of these four guys. And that happens all night long. Even even when when Rodolfo invites Mimi out to dinner, and and they start to kind of do their thing, it's like you know, cool it for a little bit, guys. I'm I'm bringing somebody in, and I I don't know if I want to see, you know, want her to see this part of of our life just yet. But we can't help it because that's who we are, and that relationship is important, and it's what carries on through the entire show. And we also have to say. This, this show, this two-and-a-half-hour piece, is only a slice of life in these guys. We open up, and it's Christmas Eve, you know, and we, 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 close, the, we close that chapter sometime in May. But a month from now, uh, they're going to be doing something else silly, and that's, that's important to, to follow through uh, with the relationship as well. Mm. And in the novel, they refer to them as the four musketeers. That's right. Yeah. Right. yeah. 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 Right. So, so, Manuel, what do you then expect from the four of them in those first, first 15 minutes, in, in, in the way they relate to each other musically? What do you require? Right. Uh, um, I think uh, Dimitri said one thing which is interesting. Uh, in the first scene, they are like one big character, like an octopus with uh, four <laughs> heads, you know, or, or eight vocal cords. And it's, it's an expression of incredibly um, vivid friendship between young people. Um, there, is, there is not much cynicism uh, among themselves. Of course, they take advantage of this poor Benoit, but the way they relate is totally uh, authentic, generous, um, like uh, only teenagers can be, you know, or, or young adults. Um, and, and so you want to convey that. Musically, the genius is that they, like friends, they finish each other's sentences in a very, very uh, uh, astute way. They sometimes, all of a sudden, without having rehearsed, sing together, you know, ah, la soir, salute. And there it doesn't feel like, oh, all of a sudden this is, you know, uh, refrain, couplet, this is just like uh, a musical thing. No, it's like those four characters, all of a sudden, they are together singing something. Uh, and the way Puccini translates this is, is remarkable, the way the musical theme is taken by one or just a motif and with other words by the other, or where one sentence is started, one phrase is, is started by one character and finished by the other. I think the big challenge is to have... Uh, in that first scene, um, that fire, 
that is not pretentious, that is just there, that is a little crazy, a little like, you know, having a lot of fun, I mean, probably too much fun. Uh, and, and at the same time, in order to translate this, it needs to be very tight. Um, the way they play Benoit, for instance, is absolutely remarkable. The music, and that's where you see Puccini such a genius. Of course, he's a genius in the... The, the melodic line invention. Of course, he's a genius in the orchestration, but there is a genius in expressing things that are very subtle and from every day. A little irony between two people talking about a certain person. So you're doing well? You're doing well? And then you have the bassoon just, just tells us by a little, uh, um, a little light on the, on the shape of things that, okay, they are just playing with the guy. They are making fun at him, but he doesn't realize it. And they are being overly nice to him. So there is this sugar in the music, but that is not for the purpose of just sugar, but it's expressing a little being fake with the guy and playing the guy. This is absolutely brilliant. This is actually the intelligence of the best film music before film music. You know, he would have been an extraordinary film music composer because he could have explained all the layers of a scene with just a little music. Um, so in that respect, uh, the, the, what you expect from the, the, your colleagues on stage is first that they look at you and they are with you um, because uh, <laughs> they have to, uh, and, and, and that they can express this, this fire of youth and at the same time keep the, the, the intelligence of the line of Puccini. And I think this big chaos at the beginning is a great contrast to those two monodic aria, just one voice aria that come later with such generous and simple lines after this polyphonic uh, uh, and sometimes slightly cacophonic situation. You know, there's a question that comes up in every discussion of this opera as far as Mimi is concerned. Does she think, does she, does she decide on purpose? Uh, does she plan to knock on Rodolfo's door is it, or is it a totally spontaneous mm. thing? So, Ana Maria, we have to have your take on that moment. <clears throat> inquiring minds want to know. Oh, inquiring <laughs> minds, oh gosh. Remember those commercials? <laughs> um, I... You know, a, a director, a stage director, will have his or her view of it, and you have to take that into account, and that will that will color some of your phrases, and it will affect your body language when you're when you're uh, uh, interpreting the role. But I think, I think she has decided. She's very courageous, and I think she's decided to knock on his door. I think she's had her eye on him for a long time, but I do think that her self-esteem is a bit low. You know, she's she's, and uh, she finally musters up the courage. It's Christmas Eve, and she's probably been alone for a long time, and uh, um, not many friends. We we don't meet her friends. You know, it's she's introduced into Rodolfo's world, and that's that's it for her. Um, so I think that she's probably been watching and saw the guys leave and said, "Now's my chance." What what do you envision sort of situations where she would have been able to observe him? Yes, I think, uh, you know, after a long day of work, you know, they're, they're, you know, neighbors. And so she's seen him maybe when they're getting some fruits and vegetables or what. I mean, I, I do play with that in my mind and how she probably doesn't have quite the confidence to look up, 
you know, and have eye contact with him, but observes and dreams. She's got a very rich dreaming and uh, rich imagination. So I think that this was it. She finally decided today. And something that Dimitri said is that, you know, the, the show starts and we meet these characters at this moment. And we always have to ask ourselves, why are we meeting these characters today? What is so special about this moment in their lives that we're meeting them now? That the, the story takes place now, that the composer thought that it was a story to be elaborated on musically. Um, and I think that we, we see so many magnificent details that we understand why we met them that day. Mm. What now, so once that meeting happens, once she is in that garret, who is the, I don't want to use the word aggressor, but who sort of takes the lead? I mean, because there are moments when she sort of moves in, to, and especially in this particular production where she is definitely not the poor little thing, retiring kind of, of character. Mm-hmm. So, so in your interaction, the two of you, what is the dynamic, as it were? I think uh, it, it can be, if you have to label relationships, which in today's now, day and age, you just don't do that. But if you had to label Rodolfo and Mimi as a relationship, I would consider it one of two things. Is there's kind of like this cat and mouse relationship, and then there's this chicken versus egg relationship. And if, oh, if you'll okay. allow me for a second. <laughs> so this, this cat and mouse thing, this, it happens. It, 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 things just naturally get passed on back and forth between the two of them. She comes in. Suddenly her candle goes out. He decides, well, my candle's going to go out too. He gets a little bit aggressive, right? It's a little dark. He's thinking, okay, well, you know. He goes for it. She backs away from it. And then she kind of adds a little bit back on again when she says, are you looking for my key? You know, like, really? So there's, there's this thing that happens. And then that, it goes on even further in Act 3, you know, when they, when, they, when they break up and then decide to get back together again. And it, there's this cat and mouse element that they play the entire time, even when she's in her, in her deathbed. There's this back and forth motion that goes on. And then the other thing that I think about is the chicken versus the egg. And Rodolfo's a poet. So, in a sense, she's his muse, if we're going to look at it from, from that point. Now, who came first? Did his poetry suddenly conjure her up, and, it, it, and she, she arrived in his life? Or did suddenly his poetry make sense because she was, she was there, and she arrived, and he finally was able to become a poet and to express himself and to live in that sense? And, and those are the kind of things that, that, that I try and play with in, in this relationship when I'm on stage uh, because I think that that's, that that's kind of what it, what it boils down to as far as just who's, who's the aggressor and who isn't here. And, it, and it's some, in, in, in productions, it changes. Sometimes one, one director will say, well, no, no, definitely she blows her candle out or she knew exactly what she was doing. And then in other times, it happens to be stan- happenstance and she just, arrives, she just shows up while he's in a writer's cramp. And it's really, it's really fantastic. That's one of the great things about the show, is that it can go so many different directions. And so, they have a beautiful relationship. Yeah. It's, uh, I think that what you're describing is, is an ideal communication and, and uh, beautiful energy between two, because uh, one person is not all one thing all the time. And uh, we all know that. There's always a give and take. There's an ebb and flow. There's a dance about a relationship, and uh, I think that they, they have a beautiful one because yeah. of that. And isn't it in the novel that after she dies, he does publish something mm. quite wonderful, and he has great success? So I think that that 
it could be that that relationship really inspired him at least to go further, looking more deeply into himself and, and accessing um, um, growth. growth. Yeah. So Anna Maria, at the end of Act One, does it surprise you that she says to him, what if I went with you, Sevenisi Convoy? Yeah, I've always seen that. I love how, you know, um, Emmanuel was saying that music can describe what no words can in any language. And the orchestra just starts to thin out and it stops. And there's this silence when she says, what if... And she would say, I want to ask you something, but I don't dare. Suddenly there's silence. What if I were to go with you, with you guys? You know, just... Um, and it's it's just so beautiful, and I've I've always seen it as, as oh God, okay, here's my chance, and she finally has that that courage. And uh, if you've ever been just terrified, um, even if it's for a good reason, your heart all of a sudden you can hear it <laughs> beating, and it feels like it's going to come out of your ears, out of your head. And I think that's that moment for her, um, because it could mean that he says, oh, sorry, you know, there's um. There's no chance of that. Uh, uh, can't happen. And then all of a sudden, nice to meet you. Goodbye. Or it's what it turns out to, which is that they do spend that evening together, and it, it changes her life. It changes his life. And um, I, I think, uh, yeah, she's terrified. <laughs> you know, I I adore not just Rodolfo and Mimi, but also Marcello, the baritone. Uh, who really is the ringleader of the whole group. And I've always been amazed, Emmanuel, that he doesn't have an aria. Uh, Puccini never gave him one. Do you sort of, does that distress you or the baritones that you've worked with who play Marcello? <laughs> uh, it's true. I, you know what? I never, I always think Marcello is, is, is a real protagonist. I mean, very important. And I never even notice he doesn't have an aria. But he is, he is I mean, I didn't well, conceptualize... he's the protagonist of... You know the Leon Cavallo version Yes, of, of course, of course. he is the protagonist yes, he's, there. Yes, he's very important there. And um, the tenor. And the tenor, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he has two amazing duets, you know. Uh, and so, uh, yes, it's very present, and it's usually given to, to, to first, first class... Uh, baritones, and, and I don't know any baritone who has the voice for Marcello who would say, no, I'm too good to sing a Marcello. <laughs> so that, that means it's a very important part. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know if originally, you know, the libretto had two more acts. Maybe there was a cabaletta for Marcello or something <laughs> like that. So maybe one day we'll discover it uh, mm-hmm. or someone because, will write it. Because even Colline gets an aria, yes. even if it's a brief Musetta, of right. course, has her waltz, and he is left... Right. With, that's true. Because you know. even Chouinard in the first act that's has right. his he's, big scene. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. So right. he's sort of the glue holding things together. Right. Um, so the two of you in Act One, you have each to sing one of the most famous arias in the repertoire for your vocal categories. So do those arias, first his Kegeli de Manina and then Hermi Chiamano Mimi, do those arias present any particular vocal challenges, first, first of all? Hmm. Sure. <laughs> Hello. Sure. Uh, yeah, you don't you don't climb to the top by being easy with that, uh, and and it's it definitely has its, um, it has its it has its difficult moments, but it's uh, it's also really important to, um, to play to to. to Maestro and I have been doing it very, or working on it to be very simplistic. Just very, these are two people, and they're just in a room that's dark 
and they're talking, and that's that's uh, that's what it's that's what it's about. It's just about communicating on a very basic level, and and the 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 issue with that is, of course, that it's one of the most well-known pieces in the world, and everybody can sing it along with you if you want to. So how, you have to say something special with it. Uh, when you do that, and, I, and I, that's, that's just kind of what, what I think the two of us have been working on, is just trying to say, say it as simply as possible that, well, these are the things that I love, and then you walked into the room and my life changed. How simple can you say that? Um, so, but, but just focusing on that seems to, to make it, uh, um, for me anyway, a much easier piece to tackle in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, she, she takes all of his ideas and she actually creates poetry out of them, which is, which is the, I think, the better of the two arias anyway because of that. She just, she, she just goes to that next step and he just says, well, I'm such a fool. I was almost there. I almost had all these great things to say. And then she just took it to the next level and, and I'm, you know. I'm just not as good a poet as I thought I was. <laughs> or that she's so inspired by what he's saying. That, Chicken that versus again, egg. It's, it's that, you know, you're, you're both growing. Both yeah. growing together. Yeah. Uh, so so with, I, with Me Camino Me Me, yeah. where are the challenges there? You know, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's technically as challenging as Rodolfo's aria. I really don't. Um, I think that everybody does know it, and the big, beautiful climactic point is when she's describing the first rays of sun in spring. Mm. And the challenge there is you want to have enough cutting power in the voice to be heard over the orchestra because that's when the orchestra has the opportunity to really just soar and fly. And you don't want them to hold back. So you've got to make sure that that you've got all of um, your... uh, technical tools in place, so to speak, so that you can really deliver that line with, with the maximum effect and, and hopefully inspire everyone to feel that they're also seeing the first rays of sun, especially when you think about how shy she is, to come out with those glorious lines. Finally, finally, she's found someone with whom she can express all of this. What's really interesting, too, describe how the aria ends. Oh, it's, it's, so, it's, it's probably one of the lower registers for a soprano, um, and it's like a little recit at the end of it that says, I have nothing else to tell you. Um, I'm just the um, neighbor, an opportune neighbor that came to bug you tonight, you know, that came to interrupt you. And, and, very, and just you. The, the lowest part of the voice. And then it's like... Altro di me non lo saprei narrare, sono la sua vicina che la viene fuori d'ora importunare. Bum. In defense of my colleague, there is no hesitation in the applause at the end. Oh, <laughs> She's fantastic. You're sweet, you're sweet, you're um, sweet. Coffee for you, when, I'll get you coffee. <laughs> when, we, when we move into the next act, we have total fun, it seems to me. Yeah. I've always wanted to be just on stage as an eavesdropper on Act 2 of Bohem just because it would just be so cool to be part of it. So, Emmanuel, from your point of view, there's, I know there's a lot going on for you in the pit, but can you have a great, as, as great a time as the people on the stage? Well, um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, provided that the trumpets play in tune, <laughs> that uh, the second violins don't fall asleep, uh, <laughs> that the car with all those funny instruments on stage is not in the blocking the views of the tenors, that no kid is falling in the pit. Uh, I, <laughs> I can have fun, yes. Uh, 
<laughs> so I will tell you at the end of the run if I had ever fun. Um, you, uh, it's it's actually it is very challenging because it needs to move more than than any other thing, and and everything is conspiring against you in that act um, um, because it's very dense. Um, and with modern staging, of course, you, you, uh, uh, some of the singers, some of the choruses, very far away on stage, which at a fast tempo is a real challenge because um, the delay makes you know the voice arrive late, and so they have to anticipate. You have to accompany that, and you have to kind of just jump into the emptiness and try to put everything together. Um, you also have the banda at the end of the act, you know, the, 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 the trumpets and the drums, they start off stage, they don't really see you, they are supposed to follow you without seeing you, which usually doesn't work, so you have to compromise, you have to accompany without accompanying, and they, they arrive on stage. Um, and so uh, as far as coordination is concerned, it's very difficult. Um, the area of music, Musetta, technically, is, is a big valse with a lot of frubati, but that needs to be very tight and very natural, so that's very difficult too. So technically, it's totally virtuosic for the conductor, um, but the main goal is exactly what you say, to convey that joy, that craziness, that movement of abandon, the, the, this comic aspect of things, this over-the-top quality of things. Um, and so... You need to feel that in you also at one point, but you need to distance yourself from it because if you get crazy and if you have fun with it too much, it just might, might fall apart. <laughs> it literally fall apart. This is one of those places when, when you, you enter a few bars, you say, okay, well, maybe in five bars I will still be alive, you know. Uh, so, so it is very challenging. But then when you master the challenge, this is fun to do too. And that fun can be used as communicating the fun of the scene itself. I think the virtuosity of the scene technically is part of what makes it uh, brilliant and, and with a lot of colors and, and a lot of, uh, you know, huspa and, 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 and movement. So, so when it works, it's extraordinary because it's difficult. Uh, um, but uh, it, it definitely... I mean, I was looking the other day. I think it's 26 minutes. You know, it feels like... I don't like, know if it's even that. I've seen yeah, yeah. it come in at like 19 or 20. Right, right. right. Yeah. And it, it feels... But yeah, so I'm making a mistake myself. It feels like at least 45 minutes when you enter this. You know? <laughs> um, I'm curious as to whether you have ever, ever had the experience of... Ha- in it, like, especially in a European opera house, of having to go in and conduct a bohème for which they, you didn't get very much rehearsal because I spent a year in Vienna and I heard at least four bohèmes at the Vienna Staatsoper and it was like they had never rehearsed it at all. And as a result, Act 2 went completely to pieces every single right. time. Yeah. So yeah, they it, it right. seemed to me they underestimated the, the right. demands of it completely. What, what do you have in, in the States? You, you invoke the, the fifths when you don't want to incriminate yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I have done such performances, yes. yes. Uh, and, and in one of them, the, they, didn't have the, the, they didn't want to have the banda. They had the banda pre-recorded. Oh, so you had goodness. to follow a recording. Oh, uh, and, and and that was that was uh, difficult. I did that one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So in Germany, 
and uh, so, so that, yes, that's that's challenging. Yes, and what's happening is that all the you know the financial uh, people in an opera they say, oh, it's poem. We don't need rehearsals. You know. Oh, it's easy. Come on, come on, guys. You just you throw that on stage. Everybody knows it. Well, actually, it's not enough to know it. You, you really have to put it together, and you have to make it fresh. You have to, make, you have to reconsider a lot of, of the, the situations because it's, it's very rich. You have a lot of options, and, and you need to know your colleagues in order to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess once more, the challenge is part of the fun, and when you succeed, the audience gets that. So, Dimitri and Anna Maria, where's the fun for you in Act Two? Oh, there's a lot of fun. I, I, I love eating on stage. <laughs> <laughs> what, this, what are you eating in this particular well, production? This, this is the first production where they actually came up to me during the rehearsal period and said, so what would you like to eat on stage? Mm. I said, oh. So for this production, I have roasted chicken. They regretted asking that question, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, because all four of us just started. <laughs> I, but I eat some... They I took some, your orders? They literally. took our orders. They literally took our orders the week before we moved on to stage. So I have roasted chicken and green beans. That's what I, that's what I requested on stage. Because green beans are nice and uh, there's a lot of moisture in there. So you kind of chew into them and it just kind of... You know, fills your mouth with with with. Do you with have hydration. that much time? To, that much musical time? No, no, you so you eat? just sing with some food in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what it is. <laughs> now, now Anna, Mar- Anna Maria, when 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 they Sometimes. ask me me, when they ask me me what she wants, doesn't she she say I'd like some custard or some ice cream? La, la, crema. la crema. Yeah, la crema. yeah, yeah. So then I, I said to them, I said, look, I'm not gonna eat while I'm up here, but uh, so just give me like a bowl with Cool Whip on it or something simple. But I should have asked for creme brulee. <laughs> I'm thinking. I I'm, oh, but you know, what moment you do, on the lips is a lifetime on the hips. So right. maybe what, not. what you don't know, guys, is these are all the leftovers for Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was one thing in the Vienna production that I noticed that I, at the end of Act Two, toward the end of Act Two, that I loved. You actually saw Musetta being introduced to Mimi, and you saw a sort of byplay between the two of them. So, Anna Maria, I wanted to ask you. Um, do you think they had ever met before, or is this totally a, I've a new acquaintance? It, I've always seen it as it's completely new, and, and one of the things that makes me think that is, I mean, she could be kind of faking that she's never met her, but I think Mimi doesn't have a poker face. I think Mimi's, mm. you know, what you see is what you get. So she's, as soon as Musetta comes in, uh, after a few comments from the guy, she says, she's beautifully dressed, do you know who she is? And then Marcello says, ask me, I'll tell you. And then, ooh, does he lay it on thick, yeah. Um, I have always played it as, wow, isn't she fabulous? Mm -hmm. And I think that in many ways, Musetta and Mimi are two sides of the same woman. And uh, perhaps behind closed doors, uh, in absolute privacy, Mimi can display with Rodolfo some aspects of Musetta that we don't get to see on stage, let's say between acts two and three. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I think that definitely Mimi admires her, her beauty, her style. She's so self-possessed and and beautifully confident and um, also just doesn't care what anyone's going to say or think. She just does what she wants. And Mimi would never have the courage to do that. So I think that she admires her greatly. Um, and I do think that they become very dear friends. And I think that Musetta probably doesn't have a friend like Mimi in her life. Um, and they, I do believe they grow quite close. You know, 
in the third act, when Mimi comes to the tavern and she meets Marcello, he says to her, uh, I'm painting murals here, and Musetta is giving singing lessons. I always wondered what Musetta's singing lessons were like. I think that's, that's code for... Something else. Ah. <laughs> I think. Roger, come on. Oops. <laughs> so every time Marcello says that, I go, oh, I don't know if I should be hearing this. Yeah. Now, um, one important aspect of Mimi that isn't really touched on very often, she says, remember when she's saying farewell to Marcello, I mean, to Rodolfo in Act Three, she says, that a por- she'll send a porter for her things, her few things, one of which is her prayer book. And then also in Act 1, in Mi no Mimi, she says, I don't go to Mass very often, but I pray a lot on my own. So how important... Where, what do you think she gets out of prayer? I think it's a, a very good question, and I think it's one that we would all ask, you know, depending on our relationship with prayer for whatever reason, if it's to a God that we believe in, if it's to the universe, if it's to Mother Nature, if it's um, to our higher self. Um, I think that faith and prayer are very, very special to her. I personally have always felt that way myself uh, since very early childhood, so I definitely identify with that. And I think that she has led a very solitary life. And I think that her greatest companion has been her faith and her prayer. And I think that that's why she can't imagine parting with that prayer book. It's very much a part of who she is. Um, Act 3 is actually, it, it, it's so moving, especially the way it's being presented at Lyric. But one thing that I've always been fascinated by in Act three is what you learn about Rodolfo in his big dialogue with Marcello. And so, Dimitri, I wanted to talk about that whole conversation when you say that you want to leave Mimi. Um, when you're singing Rodolfo in that scene, what sorts of things do you imagine that he and Mimi would have said to each other during those months together that would have brought them to this point where he wants? To leave her? What has their life been like that brings him to this point emotionally? Mm. I, th- I think the important thing to understand first about them is that they're young and they haven't had a lot of experience in life, much to what they think about being bohemian and, and knowing everything about life. And I think um, what at first seems to be uh, merely a fainting spell ends up uh, taking a real toll on on their relationship, and being a, a young person in a relationship and not knowing how to handle that kind of stress of somebody being sick and not knowing what to do, I think it manifests itself in many different ways. And I think just having been a younger guy, or right, okay, I'm still young, but being much younger at some point, uh, you know, the, the thing that you, that you do is you just distance yourself from it and you make, you make something else up just because just you don't want to deal with, with the issue, the real issue at hand. Um, and you can get away with that for a while, but at some point you're going to have to deal with it. And I think that, that Rodolfo showing up at Marcello's doorstep in Act 3 is that moment when he, he just... He, he gets away from her because he, he just can't do it. He can't do it anymore. He can't handle it. He goes away, and he makes something up. He just says he's going to break up with Mimi because 
you know, he saw her flirting with some other guy. It's like, it's preposterous. Where did he get that from? So he's fabricating these things. Uh, and, and finally, Marcello, who's a good enough friend, says, hey, what's really going on? And so, but I think Rodolfo went there because he needed to do that for himself. And he needed to do that for the relationship. So I don't know what really happened in, in those kinds of times other than this mounting stress. And, and her getting slowly worse in whatever illness it is that she has, and him not, just not knowing what to, how to deal with it, the fact that he might lose her. He'd rather break, break up with her than, 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 than deal with the loss. And that's, that's something very real, I think. And that's, that's a hard thing to, to, to face. So you don't imagine that they would have had any sort of confrontations. I saw you looking at that guy, and then she would, you know, this kind of because because you see a little bit of that in Act Two. Who were you looking at? Yeah, right? I think I think that the, the jealousy plays plays a part, and different productions require different levels of, of jealousy. And we decided in this production to not play it so much. In fact, we we decided to go cat and mouse with that little mm. exchange there. Oh, explain. Yeah, because I wanted to talk about that. There's, yeah. there's a moment in explain. Um, what there's a there's a moment in Act Two, right in the middle of the act, when they have a little exchange that really sort of shows where things are going. I mean, because when they, Anna Maria, what does he say to you, and what do you respond? Mm-hmm. Well, basically saying I I wouldn't I wouldn't forgive you if you did something like exactly. that. Exactly. And uh, I, the way that we're playing it here. I've even wondered if the last relationship he had was a little bit similar to that and that maybe seeing Musetta and Marcello kind of reminds him of that. And he's like, I really don't want to go there again. Um, And then she says, I love you so much. Um, I'm completely yours. What are you talking to me about forgiveness or non-forgiveness or not being able to forgive me for that? What? What? Exactly. It's amazing that that just comes up. His Mm -hmm. remark is is even... Is, is very bitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, yeah. in, there is something like a, a threat that is that yeah. is very nasty in yeah. there. I mean, Dimitri wants his character to be nicer than he is there, but mm-hmm. there he's really behaving badly. And and the way musically she responds, it's like this holy water of love that is washing everything. And here the genius of Puccini is incredible because you you see. <coughs> Pointing uh, a scene of being tired, old couple being already tired of being together somehow, having a fight about, mm. well, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And then all of a sudden, in one bar, in two notes, we are in the deepest sea of love. And I think that's really extraordinary. And this is not only about sentiments or feelings it's like the the very first two arias or just even Chiela una donna all of a sudden the music has a value that goes well beyond the expression of a psychological moment it has a poetical value it has a poetical value that is very very high mm-hmm. that's why people who uh, despise Puccini don't understand Puccini it's not because you have feelings and at some point, the use of psychology and a very uh, smart uh, um, use of the orchestra and of the harmony to express a psychological situation, it's not because you have that that he's a bad composer, because that's not ultimately what he's going for. What he's going for is a very elaborate expression 
poetical expression of human truth. And this is at the level of the highest poets. This is really, really wonderful. Um, and so, you know, you, we had uh, Gérard Mortier, the boss of the, the Paris Opera, who said, uh, as long as I will be the director of the opera, no uh, Puccini opera will be performed in my house because, uh, you know, it's beneath uh, our standards. I find this absurd and intellectually wrong and actually uh, not smart at all and not cultured at all, ultimately, because it's misunderstanding what the ultimate value and point of Puccini is. Mm -hmm. And of course the feelings are very important. And of course this doesn't work if you don't understand the feelings. But the ultimate goal is to express poetically, not only sentimentally, but poetically the human truth. And this is what art is about. Maybe not all what art is about, but I think this is what art is about. Which is make things that we think we know true again for us, make them relevant for us. So those feelings of friendship, lost, deaths, love, being tired, being cold, are expressed so vividly and with such a truth that we are better people when we go out of that opera house. Even if we listen to it for, you know, 120 times. Mm -hmm. Even if we get paid for it, you know. You know, I... I'm always interested in uh, when Mimi comes on in Act 4, and of course she's dying. Anna Maria, how do you communicate the fact that she is dying while still being able to sing? Because it's a contradiction in terms, because you're giving, you're giving these big, broad, legato lines to sing, and yet you're dying of tuberculosis. Yeah. So how, what's the, how do you sort of reconcile that? Yeah, that, that's a doozy. That's a doozy. I think that uh, you, you've got to then show with your body language, um, maybe taking some breaths where you normally wouldn't to show some, some loss of, of breath in a sentence, uh, thinning out towards the end, thinning out the color of your voice. Um, uh, there's one line mm-hmm. that I like to speak it more as she's saying goodbye to him rather than sing it. So it's kind of spoken um, which will make it stand out more for for the ear of the audience. Um, you yeah, can't, you yeah. can't cough realistically, can no. you? No, you know it's only in this production, sixteen years singing the role, where I've re- learned how to cough and not <laughs> and kind of make a sound when I'm doing it, not hurt myself. Because <laughs> 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 coughing is the most violent thing you could do to your vocal cords, so. Um, I thought yeah, that was just try my not cologne. to. <laughs> yeah. um, the, I wanted to talk to Dimitri and Emmanuel about the last moments for Rodolfo. First, when what I'm talking about, Emmanuel, is uh, when he begins Che vuol dire andare venire, all of that. Mm. What is actually indicated in the score for him, for the, the way those lines should be delivered? Um, because I, I think it's it's. Uh, uh, ah, it says something like parlando, but it ends to uh, almost screaming at one point. You know, che vuol dire che non deve venire? Che parare così? So, so it's kind of uh, it's not rhythmically so accurate and so oh, precise. Oh, it's not. Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. 
um, or is it? I mean, there are a few there are a few poses that are written, and you know, long and and but obviously it has to be paced according to the staging and and the situation, mm-hmm. um, and and this intrusion of something which is almost spoken word is. Um, is is a very frightening contrast after this uh, burst of, of lines that they mm-hmm. had before and before this uh, incredibly powerful use of the orchestra after that. And so you go somehow to something very prosaic, like the spoken voice, a little, you can have a choice as to do this, but a little, you know, losing your breath and, and screaming and very prosaic in a certain sense, uh, and then you have the music that is expressing uh, very vividly the feeling of loss. Um, so, Dimitri, in those spoken lines or semi-spoken lines, what are you actually saying? The, the spoken lines are... Uh, uh, Colline says, how's it going? In colloquial, of course, and I say... Uh, See, you can see she's, she's, she's peaceful. She's, she's quiet at the moment. In other words, she's not coughing. She's not... Uh, and then the next line is, what is the meaning of this back and forth looking? And that, that's supposed to signify them just being nervous and everybody else, you know, it's the big elephant in the room and everybody knows except for, for Adolfo and they just don't know what to do with it. And, and then the next line after that is, why are you looking at me like that? As if to say, he, I, I already know, but seriously? And... Um, I think Puccini in the last two pages of the opera fancied himself more of a stage director than a composer because there's, there's more written things on those two pages than actual musical notes. There's, there's these asides and, and Musetta comes in and then, then blah, 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 so blah, blah. It's, like blah, stage, blah. it's, stage, it's staging, it's stage yeah. direction. And uh, I, think, I think that's because he, uh, he, he gets to letting the music do what what it's supposed to and in the in the 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 stage piece that that barriere uh, did with murga um i think the line that rodolfo says at the end is oh ma jeunesse c'est toi colanter which means colanter mm-hmm. which means oh my youth you're being buried and i think i think that that's that stands out more to me than, than what it is that, that Puccini wrote. And it, where Puccini made it work musically and where it came alive is by the repetition of the, of the music that Mimi first sings when they're alone together. Um, it's just it's like you know it's he's bearing it it's like a shovel every single time and Puccini goes back to that in the end and and that's I think that that line that descending line is much more important than the spoken than the spoken words and for that I don't I try not to give it as much drama as why are you looking at me like that I just I don't Mm. think it needs it at that point those of you who haven't seen the bohème yet will be astounded by the delivery of that line, which is by far the most effective that I have ever heard from anybody. It's, it's so moving. It's, it's extraordinary just because it's so me- the way it's delivered is by Dimitri is so meaningful and, and, and believable, just believable for the moment. Mm. F- finally, um, 
We surely this piece has a special message for the public to take with them and think about afterwards. But I just wanted to hear from the three of you what you feel this piece communicates that stays with people forever. I I think the first thing that comes to my mind is love and that that's all that really matters and that's all that remains when we're all gone. And I think that the objective of the author in the novel um, was to, to express how we all just want to leave our mark on this world in one way, uh, hopefully try to leave it a better place than, than what we found it uh, in the first place. So those are the things that speak to me. I just love its ability to, to tell a story in the art form in which we present it. I think opera is... Uh, really important for the world as far as the the conveying of emotions. I think music has a way of saying something and being something um, that you can only kind of pull on that string, of, you know, towards the heart with, with the music. And and I think we're just really fortunate that we have a piece like this that, that does say so much and it does convey so many emotions, the strongest of which is love. And And to be able to say it in a different way uh, is really is really important and necessary in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would obviously subscribe to those two uh, affirmations. Um, Ma quando viene cielo, that she's singing, you know, when all of a sudden, when finally things that are frozen melt and you have the life of spring. I think that's one of the message of the piece, that is, leave what you have. Uh, be aware of the, the 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 force and the value of what you have, and don't let it frozen. Just open yourself to all the desires and all the vitality you have. And the second message, which helps understand the first one, is um, you don't understand life if you don't understand death. You don't understand uh, love if you don't know the price of being together and the fact that maybe you could lose each other. Uh, the best expression of death in the piece is maybe the moment uh, Colline, which is very prosaic, says, okay, goodbye my coat. And that leaving that coat all of a sudden is, okay, the object is here and it's not going to be there anymore. Well, I want to thank all three of you very much. Ana Maria Martinez, Dimitri Pitas, and Emmanuel Villon. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.